All right, good morning, Grace Church. Wow, is this a little, a little tall? I mean, man, look at that. Okay. You know, I have to be honest, when, I, when you come out here on a Thursday night, you just know that, you know, everyone smiles at you, or at least you assume that because all I see are masks. But, you know, you have this feeling that everyone's just kind of waiting for the real show, man. Everyone's waiting for the good stuff. And the good problem we have at Grace Church is our worship team rocks. So, if you haven't been here to a Thursday yet, you need to be here because you are missing it. I know, I've heard it from everybody. I just wish I could get the worship back. You know, it's great to have the kids' content in the sermon, but I miss the worship. Well, I'm sorry. I can't change how it feels on your phone, but you could come on a Thursday night, right? It's good. I'm telling you, if you haven't been here, it's good stuff. You're missing out. Now, to my part, we're talking about the church, healing the American church. Now, we have an assumption, of course, with this idea. You only heal things that are wounded. You only mend things that are broken. And that is exactly what I'm assuming right now. I'm assuming that the American church is broken. We've talked about uh, some angles on that, some threads. And so uh, today I plan to open a new one, of course. Plan to have a little bit of fun with it. Uh, I encourage you today to lean in. There are some things I'll say that you've heard before, but I guarantee that you don't know how the whole thread works. You've maybe heard the one side, the one tip. I'm going to kind of show you where this thread comes from. I'm going to start pulling it from the back end out. Now, have you heard the phrase, I have Jesus in my heart? Come on, raise your hands. Who's got Jesus in their heart? Okay. Is Jesus in a studio apartment? Does he have two bedrooms? Does he have a porch? What's going on in that heart of yours? Huh? No one got it? Okay, funny. All right. You get it. Jesus in my heart. Now, to explain this phrase to you, I have to tell you a story about a Billy again. Now, last week we had a story about a Bill. Today, it's Billy, but it's Billy and Charles. Now, to explain the story, to start with, to find this thread where it begins, we got to start with Charles. We have this man named Charles Finney, famous man. He was well known for his crusades. Think of like a giant circus, not a show. But we, you have thousands of people who would travel for miles, far bef um, before the time of airplanes, and it wasn't easy to get to these things. So when the word would go out that Charles Finney was going to be in town in a large city, people would travel for days to get there to hear him. Now, the one thing about what Charles did that is probably foreign to you is that Charles held these preaching events that lasted days. On average, they were five to seven days. So for five to seven days, you would come back every night to hear the next part. And Charles would preach the same thing every single time he would go out. He had a, a five to six step process, and he would teach for hours each night. So at the end of it, you would get about 20 hours of Charles Finney teaching you the scriptures before the main event. On the last night, whether it's the fifth night or on the seventh night, Charles Finney would give an altar call, which at that time, it didn't really have a name. And he would give everyone the opportunity to begin this walk with God that he had been talking about for seven nights. Now, in 1871, month of October, I believe, he was preaching in Chicago. Thousands and thousands, I think the number was around 50,000 people were out here at his event. I believe it was night two or three. And he had been preaching about the same thing he did in all these other cities. He'd been building up this idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, something happened on that night. Everyone heard the preaching. Everyone went home. And when they went home that night, the Chicago fire happened that night. Thousands of people died 
instantly that night. And when he came back the next day, he realized that the majority of people he had been preaching to did not make it through the night. And he was heartbroken. He began to cry and to pray and to search the scriptures, and he felt like it was his fault, like I should have saved them. There could be thousands of people who are not with God right now who could be in hell right now because of what I did, because of what I didn't do. So he felt like there was a verse that he found in the Gospel of John. It says, today is the day of salvation. And that marked a turning point. Well, you know as the altar call, if you went to a church where you would end service and everyone would be called to the front, that is a very new thing. It started in 1871. And it started with this idea that we need to make sure that everyone gets saved as quickly as possible. We need to get as many people from darkness to light as quickly as possible. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Three people. Amen. All right. It does sound like a good idea, doesn't it? And everyone goes, yeah, but it's a trick. You're going to trick us. You always do. Not trying to trick you. I try and teach you some history here, right? He starts this thing, and now we have a handoff. It goes on for around a hundred and so years, and then there becomes this man named Billy. Now, in church history, we have lots of Billies. You know him as who? Billy the Graham. Right? Long before Instagram, this was the Graham. Uh, come on now. You guys have to... I, I, you're smiling, but I can't see it because of the, the mask. It's really frustrating. Like clapping or something. I don't know. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Billy the Graham. And Billy was taught by someone named Billy Sunday. See all the Billies? They're all through church history. And the Billy taught the Billy the same method from the Charles. But Billy Graham perfected it. He saw what could be done. And so he had a challenge from Billy Sunday. I want you to take the entire gospel, the good news of Jesus, and I want you to compress it. You should be able to tell someone the gospel in 30 seconds. 30 seconds. When you, when you see them in the taxi, when you're walking by them at the grocery store, you should be able to get them, tell them the entire thing in 30 seconds. Oh, and Billy was good at it. And so Billy Graham saved more people in this country, on record, than anyone else. Because he was one of the most gifted speakers, and he knew how to take something and to simplify it. And so he did. And part of the things he taught was his phrase, that you would ask Jesus into your heart, that you would start a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, there's something that happens in church history, which we talked about last week. The innovators are never really the ones who really cause the problem. Typically, it's three or four steps down the road. It wasn't that Finney was wrong with what he was trying to do. It wasn't that Billy Graham was wrong with what he was trying to do. But churches began to notice, do you see the crowds that Billy gets? Billy gets on TV. Billy gets thousands of people, and I can't even get 20 people in my church. What if, what if, what if we begin to do what Billy does? And now churches began to teach the same exact, let's compress everything in the scriptures as small and as simple as possible. If you didn't know, on Sunday morning it's raining where you are, amen, hallelujah. Uh, and so what happens in this is you now have a national movement where every pastor is using this thing called an altar call, and every pastor is simplifying the gospel. And now every single person who's teaching the scriptures is teaching 
how you say this, a 30-second version of it, right? If you guys have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. This, this is kind of a harsh passage. Um, I want to read the whole chapter to you, but of course, we don't have time for that. But stay with me. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Pause. And everyone goes, well, hold up, Pastor Devin. That's not the passage I was taught when I got saved at youth camp. I disagree with you. In Romans it says, well, Jesus said in verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone sees it and will mock you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is able to go to war against another king. Won't the first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, here's a part that applies to us, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Now that might sound a little different. How would your conversation go in the taxi, at the store, in 30 seconds? Hey, what's it mean to get saved? Give up everything you have and hate everyone you ever knew. Do it. How would that go? You think you'd have thousands of people coming to your events then? Of course not. See, the intention that Charles had was a good one. The intention that Billy had is a good one. And even the work that they did is good work. The problem is when pastors and teachers try to become evangelists, we have an issue. You see, most of you would be what they call uh, evangelical Christians. The word comes from the Latin, evangelion, good news. Man, I wish I could preach more on that word. The problem is this. We've given some people a cheap gospel, and it's summarized it's almost hard to teach because it's so in front of you. Have, you. have you ever had an issue that was so in front of your face that you just couldn't even see it? It was so obvious to anyone else, but to you it was almost invisible. See, even the picture of Jesus in my little itty-bitty heart, right? If he's here, then where else is he not? If I can fit him into this one section of my life, if I can fit Jesus into one Sunday out of five, if I can fit Jesus into just this politics, I can fit Jesus just into my personal idea of morals, that everything's fine. I, since I've been pastoring, I've had this phrase said to me over and over again, stop trying to complicate everything. I just want the simple truth. Pastor Devin, when I come to you with a question, why do you always give me more questions? Why don't you just give me the 30-second answer? See, there's something that happens with really good questions. As you get older, as you begin to grow into adulthood, hopefully you begin to ask adult questions. Have you noticed that your answer you give to a three-year-old is not the same one that you should be giving to a 30-year-old? I have no problem 
trying to condense the beauty of the goodness of the gospel into 30 seconds. But when that is all that people know, See, we talked about last week. What happens when the only thing that we have is so watered down and we hand that watered down junk to the next generation, they choose to water down a little more and hand to the next generation, they choose to water down a little more. What is left? I've found it to be one of the most difficult things I've ever challenged to talk to anyone about what it means to be saved. Because everyone is absolutely for sure that that 30-second message that they were told, that Jesus lives in their little heart, that they said five words, and that they're good to go. Have you ever heard the phrase shotgun wedding? Anybody? How about uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Did your salvation come from Vegas? This is what I'm asking you right now. We're, did you have a, a night when your emotions got a little high, when the environment kind of got you feeling it, and you just did something impulsive. See, I've been in rooms with really good preachers. I'm not gifted to, you know, do that style of preaching. It's not my gift. But I've been with people who have scared the everything out of me. What would happen if you stepped foot out the door and a bus just ran you over? <laughs> are you going to heaven? Or are you going to be lit on fire forever? Boy, I'm telling you right now, you give me that, if I believe that right there, I will run to any altar, say any prayer you want me to do. See, the reason that Charles used to spend seven days teaching this before he invited people to follow Christ was he wanted them, just like Luke 14, to count the cost, to know what in the world they were getting into. See, as a pastor, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to get married, will you marry me? I say, hey, if you will commit to three months with me to counseling. Why? Because being married isn't about the ceremony, and it's not about the words you're going to say. It's not about the ring you put on their finger. It's about knowing what it is to live self-sacrificially. And I don't think you know that yet. If my kids come to me and say, hey, I had this great idea. There's this, this, this girl I've been dating for, you know, three days. She's awesome. We're getting hitched. I'm not going to be excited. Why? Because I've been married. <laughs> Am still. I know what it is. I know what it costs. And I know that they have no idea what they're signing up for. There are few adults I bump into in churches who have any idea what it means to follow Christ. None whatsoever. The most serious adults I come into, I come in contact with, are just now learning, just getting a hint of what it means to follow Jesus. I can probably count on one hand the people I've pastored in 10 years, the people who genuinely have had it grip them and it scares them because they know what it is to follow Jesus. They know what Jesus meant when he said literally to leave everything behind to follow Christ. It means that if you are carrying your cross, you will come to a place in your life where the cost to follow Jesus will almost be too much for you. To love people that way, to sacrifice that much, to change that much, to forgive that much, to learn that much is almost too much. And so for us, one of the things that we have destroyed the church with is a cheap salvation. 
If you didn't know this, Jesus actually calls us slaves. Actually, that's the Apostle Paul. A more accurate word for you wouldn't be the person who is saved. It would be the person who is a slave of Christ. Someone who literally is bonded to this Lord, whose freedoms are handed over. How, how difficult would it be for an American to give up their freedoms to follow Jesus? Just think about that just for a second as we go into July 4th. I was going to preach on that. You're lucky I didn't. So today, it leaves us with just one thing left to do. You need to count the cost. You need to ask yourself, what does it cost me to follow Jesus? What do I give Jesus really in my life? How much energy, how much thought, how much sacrifice? What does Jesus actually get? In the scope of my life, of my hobbies, of my work, of my goals and dreams, of my friendships, of my wasted time, of my friends or family or my spouse or my children, what does Jesus actually get from me? Because I just read that if I'm not putting this pursuit, this commitment, if this commitment to love in this kind of a soul-devoted way isn't first, should I be asking questions about what it is that I am really? And so this is where it leaves us. You have two options. You can say, one, stop complicating it. I'm good where I am. I'm fine. But if you're someone, if you genuinely believe that whether or not you're saved matters to you in any way, if you're someone who genuinely wants to model Christ to your, to your, your children, if you're someone who genuinely is worried about heaven or hell, don't you think you should put a little more in it? When you say make it simple, what you're actually saying is this. I don't have the energy or the time or the care to put anything else into that box. I'm done with that. I'm done. Are you willing to give anything else to that box? Are you willing to give anything else to Jesus? The reason that it says daily is a beautiful thing. Does anyone in the room who's still married, you understand what that daily means? I meant I was going to love this person forever on that day on the stage and everything was perfect and we had a great meal to go to and everyone was smiling. Isn't it great? I meant it then. But there are days you wake up and you say, do I mean it right now? Do you even, does that thought even cross your mind about following Jesus? Do I mean it right now? When our country is so divided, when, when it could cost a lot. I actually had someone come to me and they told me, he said, you know what? What I care about with you, Pastor, is whether or not your kids watch Harry Potter. I said, wow, I'm glad you told me how much of the Bible you know. Because what I would be caring about, if I were really worried about my salvation, I would be very concerned about kids in cages right now. Extremely concerned about that. I'd be extremely concerned about the way that I treat people who I disagree with. I'd be very concerned about bringing judgments against someone else. I'd be very concerned about the thoughts and attitudes and emotions going on inside of my heart that only I know. If I knew the Bible, those are things I'd be very afraid of. If I were someone who believed in hell, you better believe I would be worried about these things 
more than those things. So, are you going to choose to say, no, I'm good, it's simple? Or are you going to be someone who says, I think I need to put more into that box? What is it that Jesus actually gets from me? What does it really mean for me to follow Jesus right now? 